Welcome to The Gathering Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message. So today, as we're going into the message, you probably won't be very surprised to hear that we're going to be talking about stewardship. But I want you to know that this is not a message that is a reactionary message. We're not talking about giving today because we're just mentioning that we have a need. This is something that as we are entering into, as we are continuing our walk with God, that we have to recognize that part of our ability to put our trust and our hope in God comes down to where we put our finances, to the relationship that we have with our finances. And as I've studied through this, I, I, I just, I'll just be completely transparent with you. I was like, I don't want to just do a message on tithing. I don't want to just do a message on giving. Like, there's so many things that I want to talk about, so many things that are going on right now. And, but as I really dove into this, I was like, God, there is so much in this. There is so much more beyond a principle, more, more than just an idea, more than something we've been taught, that there is a paradigm shift that God wants to bring when it comes to us and our finances. There's a shift in our focus that he wants to bring because many times the truth is, that it feels like money kind of dictates our lives, whereas we should be the ones who are dictating where our finances that God has given us, what that money is doing. That we should be using our authority in where we invest what God has given us, and we should be seeing that actually bear fruit and have an impact. And so I don't want to just talk about this today. I only have so much time to do so, but in the weeks to come, we're going to talk about it even more. But I wanted to pick up today where we left off last week in Hosea uh, chapter 10, verse 12. Hosea chapter 10, verse 12 says, Sow for yourselves righteousness and reap steadfast love. Break up the fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. We talked last week about what the fallow ground was, the hardened places in our life, the places that have become dry, that we need to break up, that we need to see um, come from a place of being resistant to God to actually being cultivated so that seed can be sown. But if we break down this verse, it says, sow righteousness. What is righteousness? It's honesty, justice, and what is right in action and in deed. And it says that when you sow righteousness, you are going to reap steadfast love. Break up the fallow ground, the hardened places, for it is what time? It is time to seek the Lord. And what is the result of our seeking the Lord? That he may come and bring rain for what we have sown. That he would be the one to bring the provision that he would be the one to bring what we need, the resource, and to bring everything that is needed to take what he has placed in our lives so that it would not just be present, so we wouldn't just be aware of it, so that it would go into the ground, that it would take root, and that it would bear fruit. And last week when we looked at this, we said that the way that we break up the hardened places is with the act of repentance. I felt that there was a lot of significance in what we did last week. That in breaking up the hardened places and recognizing and allowing the Holy Spirit to come into those places of our lives that have become resistant in any way and coming and repenting for those places. I feel very strongly that those actions that many of us did last week, that they are preparing something for us, that it wasn't just for a one-week thing, 
but that we are going to see results that are going to come forward from that place of posturing ourselves before God and breaking open those places and allowing Him to have access to them. You see, these hardened places are really any place that we have ignored, put off to the side, that we have covered over, that we haven't paid attention to. And often it's been for good reason. It's because those places have been painful. We haven't really wanted to look at them. And logically, when something hurts, we don't go and grab a hold of it. We push it away. We don't want to revisit it. We don't want to look at it. But the problem is, spiritually speaking, and not just in our walk with God, this is in our relationships with others, in our marriages, in the places of our, of our places as parents, and in our jobs and workplace, in every area. If we put these things off to the side and we don't pay attention to them, what happens is they become hardened. And the only thing that comes out of them are thorns, are weeds, are things that don't produce life or fruit. And so we have to be aware of these places where we have allowed a resistance to grow between us and God. Because it's in these places where the resistance will prohibit us from seeing spiritual growth take place in our lives. Just listen to me. We might see growth in other areas, but in the places that have become hardened and resistant to what God is doing, we will not see spiritual growth. Because we have allowed there to be an atmosphere where the nutrients cannot get into the soil and therefore the seeds that we want to plant will not find life. So repentance is recognizing this and allowing God to do what only He can do. To come in and to break up those places and to give life. To give life to the seed that we want to see grow. So we want to just take a look and see what Jesus says about this topic because that's always a good place to start, right? Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21 and verse 24. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. These words are not surprising to us. These words are not new to us. But I want us to put ourselves in the position of those who are hearing it for the first time. You see, there's a lot of things in life as human beings that change over time. And yet there are a lot of things that remain the same. And one thing that I could say truly remains the same throughout all history is that we as human beings, we desire security. We desire a sense of reassurance. We desire to know that the needs that we have are going to be taken care of. And the easiest way to accomplish that is by storing up treasure, is by accumulating wealth. That's something that we all know, and there's actually nothing wrong with that. But for these people, Jesus is saying, you know that thing that you put all of that effort into? That thing that you put all of your energy into? Well, I want you to stop doing that thing. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can come. I want you to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Because there is a finite amount of time you're going to be here on earth. You can store up all that you want, but then when you leave this earth, you're not taking it with you. 
But when you get to heaven, there is going to be an eternal life. And if you store up treasures in heaven, well, then you're going to reap the reward of it, not just for now, but forever. He was telling them something that really mattered, and and he was speaking to them in a place where it it was going to be challenging, but it was going to be so important for them to hear this message. He said, I want you to recognize that there are more important things. Not that you shouldn't have any kind of wealth on earth, I don't believe that for a second. I believe that God wants us to be wise stewards of our money, that we should be those who know what our money is doing and where it's going, that we should be prepared and and ready for the future. I'm not saying that for a second. But what Jesus was revealing in this teaching was that more important than the things that we can produce in our lives, more important than the things that we have to show in this earthly manner is where the position of our heart is. The most important thing is where we have invested our lives, our energy, our thoughts, our passions, and our time. The first thing that I want us to see here today in this idea and this principle of stewardship is that God and what matters to him first and foremost is not what we can bring to him, but rather the connection that we have to him and to the Father. The the most important thing to God and everything that we're talking about is connection to Him. It's the proximity of our heart to His heart. This is why we see God as the loving Father. It's the desire that God has to draw near to us, to have us draw near to Him for relationship because He knows that in that relationship, what we are going to find is that He is the true source. That he is the only source that is never going to run dry. He's the only place that we could go to that is never going to have any lack. That he is the one that we are called to be connected to. And that's the priority that we must have. Not what we can produce. Not what we, what can we can see in the natural. But the priority is what we have determined to be our source. And Jesus tells us very quickly how to find out what our source is, doesn't he? He says, if you want to know what your, what your source is, you have to recognize where you put your treasure. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Where your treasure is, like the security that you have in life, your comfort, the sense of contentment and fulfillment, and even your identity. Where do we find those things? It's really important that we can answer that question. In other words, what are the things in life that when they are going well, give you a sense of peace? What are the things that help you sleep well at night? When you know that this thing is taken care of, what is that thing that allows you to to not worry and to not fear? Can I be honest? There have been times in my life where I've looked at my bank account and I'm like, oh, that's pretty good. I'm going to sleep well tonight. And times where it's not been so good and I'm like, oh, Like a couple of sleepless nights I've had in my life. I'll be honest, just thinking about, oh, those are a lot of bills and not a lot of revenue. But there are things in our life that we look to that are going to bring us a sense of contentment. Is it a relationship in our life? Is it a title that we have? Is it a level of recognition? Is it a possession? Is it a number in a 401k or a bank account? What is the thing that our peace is directly tied to and connected to? Now, we might all say, of course, that we all feel better when we have money in the bank. 
But we've also seen that there have been individuals who have bankrupted themselves and would have given every last penny in order to keep a relationship, in order to have a certain position, in order to have a certain appearance to other people. If I had that thing, then I would be happy. You see, it's not always money, but it is things that we have decided that if we have this, then I'm going to be enough. Then I'm going to feel like I'm enough. Then I'm going to be able to sleep at night. But whatever that thing is that gives you your self-worth, that gives me my self-worth, that is where our heart truly is. Think about that for a moment. Where is our heart? It's in the place that we get our security from. It's in the place that we find peace. And if our heart is invested in any other place than an eternal kingdom with an eternal God, with an eternal perspective of what the rest of our existence is going to look like, then no matter what we do, we are filling a bucket that has a hole in the bottom of it. We are filling a bucket that is never going to remain full because it is not being found in the eternal place of security in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Once again, I'm not saying don't be wise with your money and save money. I'm not saying don't invest. I'm saying that where our treasure is, where the place that we find our worth and our value, that is the place that we have to pay attention to. That is the place that we have to recognize that when I invest in the kingdom, when I invest in the eternal principles of what God has given to me, that I know that then I am able to find the fulfillment, the security, and the peace that doesn't pass away. Jesus goes on to say that there is a choice to be made. When we look at verse 24 in the version we just read, the English Standard Version, it says you can't have two masters, you can't serve both God and money. But money is not actually the word that Jesus uses here. He uses a Jewish word named mammon. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Mammon was the desire for wealth and material possessions. So listen again to what Jesus says. Jesus does not say you cannot have a relationship with God and still have a lot of money. He doesn't say if you want to see lives transformed, then you can't have a retirement plan and money in your bank. He doesn't say that if you want to be more holy, you need less money. He says you cannot serve two masters. In other words, you cannot see both of them as your source. You can have one source. You can have one place where you derive your identity. One place where you derive your security. One place where where you receive the meaning of who you're meant to be. It cannot be in two different places because if that happens, they will battle against each other. There will be a constant fight. There will be an internal struggle of wanting to trust God and wanting to put our faith in Him and also feeling like I have to do something on my own in order to deserve it. It's the whole thing of law and grace once again. What is my source? What is the outlet that I'm plugged into? What's the water source that I have attached myself to? I have to be able to answer that question because without it, we talk about faith and trust in God and we can say that we put our trust in God, but if our life does not represent that, if our actions don't bear that out, then where is our faith actually being placed? Is it in God being our source or is it in something else? You cannot serve two masters. Jesus also says in Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of 
God and all of its righteousness and all of these things, the other things, will be added unto you. Seek first his kingdom. So we can do that or we can serve the God of what is seen and what is physical, the God of mammon. The things that promise to bring meaning and purpose and security. The things that tell us that if we do this, then we're going to actually have what we need. The things that when push comes to shove, makes us think something along the lines of, I can have a relationship with God, but the priority, the thing that's going to help me feel secure, well, it's directly tied to the amount of money in my bank account. You see, mammon is really just a false god. Mammon is an idol. And the thing that every false god and every idol share in common is that an idol requires sacrifice. In exchange for the comfort that that serving that idol is going to bring to us, and we don't obviously bow down before like man-made idols anymore, but let's say this desire for money and wealth and possessions, when we bow down to that thing, it promises, if you bow down to me, I'm going to give you what you want. People are going to see you in a different way. They're going to respect you more. You're not going to have to worry about things. You're going to have all the things that you want. But what does it require in exchange? That we put our trust in it. That we put our faith in it. That we disconnect from the source being God. And we say, okay, if I do X, Y, and Z, and I invest in this way, if I do all the right things, then I'm going to have that. And what we're giving is something that belongs to God. In order to withdraw comfort, it requires a sacrifice. But please know this, that in any place, this is money and it's anything else, that when we choose to serve any idol besides God, we are cutting ourselves off from the eternal source. We are cutting ourselves off from the eternal source of life. The supply of rain and heavenly provision cannot flow when we have disconnected from that when we have put our faith in other things. We can plant seed, but it won't grow. It won't penetrate. And then, as I said last week, what ends up happening is that we go to God and we say, God, how come this didn't work? How come you didn't come through for me in this area? How come you didn't bring your blessing into my life in this area? I I trusted you, and yet all the while we've disconnected from him as the source. We've said the right things, but we've decided to trust in something else. What happens often is that there becomes a drought in that area of our life. And when I look at this principle of a drought, I was instantly brought back to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings 18 is the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. We know the story. There is this point in time where Elijah comes to the people. He brings them all near. They're in a time of drought and a time of famine. And Elijah comes to them in verse 21. And he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if it's Baal, then follow after him. And the people did not answer him a word. There was an indictment there in their silence. They did not answer him a word. But he goes on to create this opportunity for the prophets of Baal to show that Baal is real. Or for the people of Israel to see that God is real. But I just want you to hear something in this. He says, choose this day between the two. Who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve God? Who is Jehovah Jireh? Or are you going to serve Baal? What was Baal known to be? Baal was the god of fertility. Baal was the god that was supposed to bring produce and harvest. 
He was the one that was supposed to bring children. So we see this dichotomy here. They're in the middle of a drought, and, and Elijah is saying, who are you going to choose? The eternal God of all provision that revealed himself to Abraham as Jehovah Jireh, or are you going to choose in this counterfeit God? The God that promises to bring comfort and yet can't deliver on it. And so they set up the two altars, and we know the story, the prophets of Baal, they do all the things they can to call down fire on their sacrifice. They cut themselves and mutilate themselves, and nothing happens. Elijah steps up, he gives them instructions, they prepare the altar, and he calls to God, and God sends down fire and consumes the sacrifice. For the people of Israel, they had to see that, yes, there is a choice to be made, but in the end, there's only one choice, really, to make. It's not the God of, of counterfeit. It's the God of authenticity. It's the God of provision. But in this story, I find something really interesting. First Kings chapter 18, verses 32 through 35. This is the instructions. It says, And with the stones that represent the twelve tribes of Israel, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and he cut the bull in pieces and he laid it on the wood and he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time and do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. All right, so we see this, that Elijah tells them, take the most valuable resource on earth right now. We're in the middle of a drought. This is gold right now, this, this water. Take it and dump it on the altar. And I've always looked at this because, well, that makes it even that much more impressive. Now, do we really need to make something more impressive when God is sending fire from heaven? That's already pretty cool, right? So yeah, there was something in that and that this, the, the altar was saturated and yet the fire comes and consumes it. But what does he do first? I've overlooked this a lot. It says he digs a trench around the altar. What is he doing? He is actually breaking up the fallow ground. He's actually digging into the earth that has become hardened due to drought that wasn't producing any life. He digs into it, into the hardened places, and he goes around it. And when the water is poured on top of the sacrifice, it comes down and it's able to penetrate into the earth. There was a prophetic act that he was doing saying that the earth is not producing anything right now. It's a time of drought. But before the fire ever came, he dug into the hardened places and made room for the provision to come down. Isn't that amazing? So the water comes, the fire comes, the power of God comes, and they are given a firsthand account of what it is to see the power of God come down on the place of sacrifice that they have given to him. Well, afterwards, they no longer have the question, they see God as their source. Now, I wish everything got better after that, but, but Elijah knew the principle of trusting in God. He trusted in God even when there, there seemed to be no reason to because they hadn't, they hadn't been able to experience Him up to this point. They were doing everything wrong, and yet God was giving them an opportunity to return to Him as their source. We need to be the ones in our lives that would break through the hearted places that would allow ourselves to see the places that we have shut off from God. God, I can't, I can't give. I don't have enough. God, I, I can't do it. You, you know what my bills look like. You know what my budget looks like. I, I just can't do it right now. And these places have become hardened. 
These places have become resistant to God being able to move in those areas because we've decided, and this is not judgmental, I've been in these places, that I can't do it because it doesn't make sense. Does anything in Christianity really make sense? Is it made to become logical in our thinking? Like, this is not a religion of logical ways of thinking. God is a genius, and there is so much incredible truth in the Word of God. We can find so much. But, but this kingdom is not a kingdom that is supposed to always make us feel warm and fuzzy on the inside. Because what we are doing now, think about it, we are preparing for eternity. We are getting to invest in a lifetime that is short and finite because when we leave this earth, we're not going to get to do a do-over. We're going to step into eternity for the rest of time. So it shouldn't actually be easy on this side. It shouldn't actually be this perfect, cushy life that we want it to be, should it? If we're going to do something that matters for the rest of eternity, it should require something of us on this side. That's a good word. Last week, that's okay, it's all right. Last week, we looked at three certain specific passages found in Joel 2, Isaiah 30, and Ezekiel 34. And without going into them today specifically, you can go and read them. They're in the notes that we printed out. In each one of them, it says, if you would turn back to God, if you would repent, that God is going to bring the rain for your seed. If you break up the heart in places, if you recognize the places that you've stepped away from God, God is the one who is going to bring you what you need. He's going to pour into your life. He's going to invest into you. And this is what we have to see. When we prepare the soil, it's not just so we can dig up some dirt. It's not just so we have pretty soil. Pretty cultivated soil, if it just stays that way, it's good for nothing. It's cultivated. It's broken up so that we can invest in it so that the seed will have a place to be sown. Malachi says, sow righteousness, honesty, justice, what is right in action and deed. So in accordance, when we look at what Jesus said, with the heart of God. So out of a place of your trust that you have for your father, Jehovah Jireh. So out of a place of trusting in him, because this is going to show where our treasure really is. This is why we make a giving declaration and we speak a giving declaration every time we're going to give our tithes and our offerings because we are being intentional, not just in what we are giving, but why we are giving. We are saying, God, I trust you with my finances. I trust you with what you have given to me. Let me just make this clear as well. It's all his anyway. It's something that we have to be aware of because this is not natural or comfortable. It's all His. God, I'm entrusting you with what you've entrusted to me. I'm going to invest it in your kingdom. Give me the confidence to know that when I do this, it's for your glory. It's for your, it's for your kingdom. It's so that people would come to know you as Lord and Savior. God, I'm trusting in you. So, our tithe, our giving, is the seed that we invest in the soil because we trust that God is able to take what we have and he's able to bring more out of it than we ever could. Our seed is our place of trust. So what is the tithe? The tithe traditionally is 10% of your income. Now there's teachings on whether that's gross or net and we don't have to go into all that. Let's just say the tithe is 10%. Okay? It's the biblical standard that we see in the Old Testament, and many would actually say that it's only in the Old Testament, and I would like to disagree with that today. I've heard a couple of messages on it, and they're all wrong, um, just so you know. 
I don't know every message that's ever been preached on it, okay, just for the record. But my whole life I've grown up, and it's, it's been this simple principle. You give 10%. I was teaching it to my son yesterday. He's like, Daddy, okay, this is my kid's thing. I don't have time for this, I'm going to tell you anyway. My kids saw a commercial about a cruise, and they really want to go on a cruise. So the other day, Ellie came with her piggy bank and starts emptying it out, and all of a sudden, $50 bills and $20 bills start coming out of it, and we're like, Ellie, you're five years old. <laughs> She's like, is this enough for a cruise? I'm like, oh, maybe. It was a lot. We have a, a, a little area that we've put some money in. Ellie found it and put it in her piggy bank. She didn't steal it from anybody. It's not, you know. But I, I got home last night and I said, Caleb, here, here's a little bit. This is for our cruise and just kind of joking. And I said, but we got to go and we got to get a tenth of this and, and give it back to God. And he's like, what? I thought you said we wanted to go on a cruise. We're going to give money away? This doesn't make sense. And so I had a little talk with him. Okay, so the tithe traditionally is 10% of our income that we give into the church, into the storehouse, because first of all, the church doesn't exist without faithful giving. Let's just make that clear. The church needs the, the children of God to be obedient in investing their money in the storehouse. Okay? Um, but in America... In our church, in Churches of America, there is less than half percent of churchgoers that actually do it. We've gone through the statistics. We don't have to, the statistics, we don't have to do it again today. There are various reasons for this. Sometimes we just don't feel like we have enough. Sometimes we feel like we can't afford it. Sometimes we feel this is just an Old Testament principle. This is not meant for the New Testament. Um, but for others, maybe it's just we're not aware of the significance of it. Malachi chapter 3 we read verse 10. Let's start in verse 6. God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? In other words, what did we do wrong? God said, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? It's been in your tithes and in your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing for you until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, this is an Old Testament passage. Okay, but in verse six, he says, for the eye of the Lord do not change. Important to take that into account. He says, return to me and I will return to you. And when they ask, how have we robbed you? The, the answer was, in your tithes and your contributions. That statement is something we should pay attention to. There are two areas a lot. God says, you didn't take the Sabbath when I told you to rest, and you haven't given in the sacrifices that I've called you to give. Given. So this statement is something we should pay attention to. And when we look at the Old Testament, compared to the New Testament, we do recognize that in the Old Testament, it was centered around this principle of the law, of what I can do of who I can be, how I can accomplish it. And we know that the New Testament is filled with the fulfillment of Jesus. It's the grace of God at work through us and through Jesus as our Savior. 
So the Old Testament was the law. But when Jesus came, he said, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. It's by grace and grace alone that we are able to meet the standard that God has for us. Because in many places, the law from the Old Testament actually got raised to a higher standard in Jesus. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say, do not even look at a woman with lust in your heart or you're committing adultery. There was a higher standard that Jesus was giving to us. But through him, through his death and his resurrection, he made it possible for us to actually accomplish it. Not on our own ability, but through his grace. But the thing that I want us to see here today is that tithing is not the law, but it's rather a principle that was actually created and instituted before the law of Moses even came to be. I don't have time to read each example today, but Genesis chapter 4, we've got the example of Cain and Abel. Abel brings a sacrifice before God. It's accepted. Cain brings one and it's rejected. God says, you know, you have the ability to make the right choice, Cain, but you didn't do it, okay? And so there's a lot that we can read into this. The principle of first fruits, we'll do that at another time. Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. Abraham goes off to recover that which has been lost, his family members. He goes out, he comes back, and there is a a high priest there named Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the kingly high priest, he's the one that is actually a forerunner of Jesus. Many scholars believe it actually was Jesus. He was the one that Abraham paid a tithe to, that he blessed Abraham, and Abraham gave him a tenth of all that he had received. This happened hundreds of years before the law of Moses. This was not something that was simply instituted by Moses. All right, but I want to look at this, two things actually. I, I was doing some studying the requirement for the Hebrew people actually wasn't 10%. It was 10% annually, another 10% annually, and then another one that was for the people to be shared uh, every three years. So the tithe for the Hebrew people was actually 23%, just for the record. We don't need to go any further into that today, but I just want to just, I thought that was interesting. All right, Exodus chapter 34. This is actually part of our reading plan this past week, I believe. God gives Moses the instructions on how to build the tabernacle. He says, these are the requirements that I want you to build it in. This is the length, this is the materials, this is how it's going to be done. But at the end of all of it, God does not just supernaturally from heaven deposit all the gold and silver and bronze and material that they need. God says, go to the people, and those who have a generous spirit are to give a contribution. Exodus 36, verse 3. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. And they kept bringing that until there was so much that they actually had to tell the people to stop. Where was this wealth coming from? This is the wealth that they had received out of Egypt. And now that they're in the wilderness, the people of Israel are giving out of their gratitude to God, saying, God, you brought us out of Egypt. You gave us this wealth. Here, have it back because we want you to have a home that dwells among us. It was out of a place of gratitude and out of a place of generosity. It really is a beautiful story. So I say all this, and and like I said, we, we don't have time to go into every detail of this. But the question is, Is it true that tithing is only an Old Testament principle? I would say absolutely not. Jesus raised the standard. The only thing that changed from the Old Testament to the New 
is that in Malachi 3, it says, you have robbed God and now there is a curse. When Jesus came to this earth and died on the cross, he became the curse. He died on the cross for our sins. He took on the curse. So there is no longer a curse in the New Testament when you don't give, okay? That's the good news. But I was listening to a a short message from Andrew Romack, and he said something I thought was funny. Now remember, he said this, not me. He said, if you don't give in the New Testament, you're not under a curse, you're just stupid. (laughs) Once again, I didn't say this. I'm not calling anybody stupid, but just listen to what he was saying before, before you get offended. He's saying that in the New Testament, we have the ability to be able to express our trust and gratitude for what God has done for us. We have the ability out of a place of our heart to say, God, I thank you for what you have given me. I am going to choose to trust you. And furthermore, the incredible thing is that the return on investment that we get investing in the kingdom of heaven is far greater than anything we're going to get here on earth. There are testimonies in this room. I've seen the testimonies growing up in my parents, in my life, in my in-laws, in in our family, that God has come through in incredible ways, in times and moments where there should have been no provision, and yet God came through in incredible, miraculous ways. Somebody gave me this book, um, Jim McGurl, called The Blessed Life by Robert Morris. I want to recommend it to you because as I was reading through the first chapter, I just started to cry. It was just testimonies of God's goodness and and the excitement that comes when we realize that we get to invest in the kingdom, that we get to invest in the kingdom of heaven and also into other people. The joy to know that we get to bless other people, that we get to invest in their lives, that we get to be ones that, that God uses to bless others. It's his principle of generosity, which is so beautiful. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. We don't give in order to receive from God. But I find it very interesting that Jesus himself took the time to say that when you give, I'm going to give back to you. Jesus said this, right? This seems like, hmm, like there are a lot of things. Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow after me. If any man would deny himself like, and follow after me, that's a true follower. We, we hear these principles of discipleship. But Jesus right here is saying, when you give, when you trust me, your heavenly Father is going to take care of you. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, once again, two chapters that we're reading this week. Didn't plan it this way. Chapter 8 is about sacrificial giving. Read it carefully. Chapter 9, verses 6 through 11. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Let me just say something about this. We don't give under compulsion. We don't give because a pastor preaches a message about it. Okay? But it says that we give as we have determined in our heart, which I believe means before we ever even get here on a Sunday, we've already taken the time to talk to God. Holy Spirit, what are you leading me to give? That we come prepared because it's an intentional investment that we're making. 
Verse 8 says, And God is able to make all the grace abound to you, that so, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed. Remember, that's what we're talking about, our seed, what we're investing he will multiply your seed for sowing an increase of your harvest of righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Do you realize that if this principle of giving was just an Old Testament principle, how much we'd be missing out on? That there's so much that God promises to us as his children when we choose this day that we're going to put our trust in him that he's going to be our source, that he's going to be the one that we trust in to take care of our needs. You see, we have the exciting opportunity to actually give to him. And this is where the shift has to occur in our lives. The perspective that it's his and that we have the ability to pour into him. Once again, this book talks about generous giving, being able to invest in the lives of others. I'll give you a disclaimer. If you read this book, you might feel like you're supposed to give your car away, your house away, like, but, but it's good. It's, it's, it's really some good principles in there. We have been blessed so that we can bless others. What if we understood that not giving to God is actually selfish? Because when we disconnect from him as a source, we limit our ability to bless other people. When we disconnect, we limit our ability to be able to show other people how good he is. Value nine of our church, when you go through our Connect classes, we have 10 values that we talk about. Value nine is that we desire to be a church of great generosity. That we want to be a church that is known for our generosity. We want to be those that are able to invest in our community, that when people see us, they don't just say, oh, that's a nice building up on the hill. They must have a lot of money. But to know that the people that go to this church are generous that we love people well, that we invest not just in, in our personal finances, not just in the church, but in the lives of others as well. That we have the ability to do this in a way that's incredible. So just a couple of, of principles I just want to touch on before we close here today. Number one, where we're meant to give the first part, the first fruits, the, the, the initial 10% or 23% or whatever God leads you to, I believe it should be at least 10%, is to go into the storehouse. Malachi says, bring it into the storehouse. I care much more that you give than where you give. Because this is a relationship and a decision between you and God. But you should be bringing your tithes into the storehouse, into the church, into the place where you're fed. Number two, God ordained man to be his representation on the earth. He's called the body of Christ to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And he has set it up that we as the church, are the ones that bring forth the resources that he has given to us. This is his design. It's the way that he's done it. Number three, giving is not a requirement of salvation. It is a requirement of church membership, but not of salvation. It's not an action to earn or to achieve some kind of reward. It's obedience, it's stewardship, and it's a heart to see men and women equipped to reach the world for Jesus. And finally, this is something that I just really felt encouraged to tell you as we were going through this. There have been some in this room, some that for generations have experienced this, this identity in poverty. This place where mammon 
has been the source. And because of that, there has been a lack that has occurred in your life for years and years and years. And I do believe very simply and truly today that as we would trust God and invest into his kingdom, that he wants to break the back, break the power and break the control of mammon and poverty in your life. That there is something he wants to do specifically out of an act of trust in him. That you have the ability to not just change your life, but the generations to come. To be able to show this principle to the world around you. I truly believe that there are those in this room who give generously. And for you, I'm so grateful. And I would just say today that when you've seen God come through in your life in these areas, that you would be willing to share your testimony with others. That you have seen this principle at work and in action that you wouldn't be quiet about it, but that you would share with others to give them the exciting uh, fact that they can invest in the kingdom and God wants to do something amazing. And worship team, you can come up. Um, the second thing is there are some that we, we've given a little bit. We've given an initial amount because it feels like just kind of paying our dues as we come into church. This is not what it's about. We're not paying our dues to come into church. I would ask you, take the time to ask the Holy Spirit to show you what it is that you are meant to give in the kingdom. And finally, for those who haven't given anything, I just, this is not a place of condemnation or judgment. But we have to talk about these things. Because if we don't talk about these things, we are actually robbing you from the opportunity to be able to see what it is to trust in God and to choose Him as your source. And I would ask you as well, pray about what you feel led to give. And to know that, yes, the tithe is the starting place. But there is so much more that God wants to do through us. There's so much more that God wants to do through our church. We support missions and food pantry and, and amazing ministries. We do all these things. But there is more that God wants to do through our church. And it's through your faithful giving that we are able to do that. We want to give God what is his. And from a place of gratitude, we want to thank him for what he has done. Once again, Malachi chapter 3 says, And thereby... Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. This is an incredible promise that we have in him.